What's up guys, Luke here. This week we're going to speak to Ogie Hollywood. Ogie is an e-commerce advertising expert over there at Google. Something that we're trying to get into in the SharkBot here, learn more about e-commerce, learn more about how we can make money online, all that type of stuff. You guys know that if you're listeners of the podcast. Um, Ogie really takes us on a journey through how we got started in tech. Really interesting story. We touch on some of the themes that we don't really get to talk about too much in the SharkPod, but are very important. So we talk about mental health, dealing with that, some challenges, some pretty serious challenges that Ogie had when he was uh, studying in, in Galway. So if you're if you're looking to, ha- to listen to a really interesting story about someone's journey from uh, being really low to being quite successful, um, this is the one for you as well. The second half of the podcast is really, uh, really kind of tactical information about uh, Google AdWords, how to or Google Ads these days, and how to uh, make the most out of your e-commerce business. So really interesting. We got some some great uh, knowledge from Ogie on that. Uh, so look forward to that one. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Guys, this week I downloaded uh, Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock. What a book. Loads of it. Loads of it is bullshit. But there is enough in there to keep you entertained. Um, it goes through this incredible journey that he goes in, into all of the sites of antiquity. He's in Peru, he's in Egypt, he's in Mexico, talking about the Aztecs, all that type of stuff. Um, really, really interesting. And we've got that book for free for you if you sign up for Audible through our link. Um, you sign up for the, the audiobook there. Cancel after your first month, no big deal. Uh, you get to keep your book uh, and you support the podcast. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to kick it over to the lads. This is Ogie Hollywood from Google. Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? We are back here in Greystone Studios. We've got Mark Baker out there in Glenageary. How are you doing, Mark? Good, Luke. Good to be here. You know what, Mark? We got a new SD card and we are ready to go. We've got 40 hours of uh, content to fill and we're very excited to have our, our friend uh, Ogie Hollywood, possibly the best name in the world. How are you doing, Ogie? Yeah, very good, guys. Thanks very much for having me on today. So, Ogie, we we came in contact with you from our mutual friend, Barry Hickey. Shout out uh, B. Hick on uh, the Liverpool win as well. Uh, I saw him on Instagram. He's loving that. He's got the champers out. Uh, so thanks very much for putting us in touch. Um, do you know, the last time I seen Barry, this is this is kind of a, a poignant uh, piece, Mark. When I, I seen, uh, last time I seen Barry, I just bumped into him. And I think it was maybe the f- 13th or 14th of March. And it was on the dart. And it was a packed dart. This is just before the proper lockdown. And uh, like I was so out of touch with that because like okay, we're we're not like we don't really watch the news that much here because you know it's a lot of negativity kind of brings me down that type of stuff so I would kind of isolate myself a little bit from that. Um, so I seen him on the dart and I went to shake his hand and he's like, "What are you doing? We don't shake hands anymore." <laughs> like, I was like, I felt like I was just completely like I was a caveman who just woke up um, to the new reality. But that's how that's how different the world was three months ago but anyway um yeah. so uh, an interest in there so hopefully barry's doing well um so ogie just to give uh, some context to the listeners ogie is working for uh, working for google uh he's he's in the e-commerce uh digital strategy uh area he works with some of the biggest uh, e-commerce uh, 
uh, players in the UK. So we're glad to have him on for that. He's also interested in a lot of mental health stuff like and uh, has an interesting story, as, as he said beforehand, when we had a chat, not your typical um, maybe journey to, towards Google. Uh, so, Ogie, the let, why don't we why don't we go back to the, the beginning here because uh, we need to dig in to kind of give some context for the guys here. We're going to talk about all things e-commerce and all that type of stuff because me and Mark want to uh, in the future just have this e-commerce business that just feeds us cash. But we haven't worked it out yet. But uh, <laughs> we uh, we're, we're really trying to to put that together. So maybe we'll p- pick your brain on that as well. Get some insider knowledge. But um, so where 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 are you from? Where did you, where were you born? Yeah, so from from Westmead originally, um, and it's kind of where I would have grew up when I went to school. Moved around quite a bit around kind of Westmead and a number of different houses when I was younger. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where where myself and would have grew up by four, three, three other siblings and myself, um, and, and just with, with my mom. Um, and yeah, I guess. And was it like a technology house where you guys did you always want to work in technology growing up, or what's the what what drove you to want to work in Google? um no definitely not to be honest if anything the, the polar opposite i think um growing up you know neither of my parents really had uh careers in a kind of professional capacity my my dad passed away when i was very young um he, he unfortunately committed suicide um and that kind of situation i guess left my mom as a, as a single parent raising four kids which you know for, for her it was all she could do was, was to support us and, and you know i'm very very grateful for everything that she gave us in in, in that capacity I think, but in terms of the surrounding that I was kind of put into at, at a quite a young age, was essentially living in social housing um, and in an environment that, you know, when I look look back now, looking in terms of like mentors or, or people to look up to or, or aspirations, um, you know, there's very few people from my estate who would have finished school and uh, never mind going to college or working for a big tech company. Um, so in terms of that kind of motivation, I think it, it was very, very intrinsic. It was very much to look at how to better myself um and more so looking into like you know if, if i ever want to have a family what could i provide for them and what kind of situation would i want them to be in and and then honestly that was you know in, in some ways the, the opposite to, to what i thought i had even though there's a lot of a lot of love in my family a lot of support and a lot of encouragement um it, you know it wasn't the you know the, the idyllic setting i guess that you, you you picture when you see kind of a, a family life if that makes sense when you talk about the those areas where a lot of people around you aren't finishing school you know it's it's weird how much that affects you even if you do have a, a good kind of uh like i said good household base i know obviously there's a lot of challenges there uh coming from a single parent household as well i i hear you on that one um but like i said we were always happy enough but yeah going to it, it, the kind of mentorship in those type of areas that's a that's something that's affecting people across the world in those type of uh, environments. We can see what's happening in America as well. Um, the kind of local leadership is something that's so missing. I remember like even growing up, there was no, I don't know, there's no programs or there's no one really telling you, giving any uh, advice on the future. What do you think, Mark? Was there, when you were, so Mark is from, um, in, from Shankill in uh, Dublin, which is kind of like, a, I would say working class suburb, Mark, would you, would you call it that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um was there anyone in in there telling people that they can go out and uh chase some dreams or was it just kind of <laughs> try to keep them off the street? Yeah, well there the, <laughs> was two people telling me that. It was, it was my, my mom and dad, yeah. you know. They they used to always tell me you could be a doctor if you wanted. I don't know why they said that, but that was the the pinnacle and that was that was probably the right thing to say because that's what I thought was the pinnacle. I didn't want to be a doctor, but I knew <clears throat> oh, geez, I'm able to become a doctor. Well, then I can do pretty much anything. So yeah. it's kind of a great thing to say. I only kind of realized that a few years ago. 
that it works and it was a great thing to say and I'd probably say something similar to my kids now but yeah surrounding me was yeah no there was, there was a big drug problem and stuff like that and in, in Shankill at the time so I do think to go back to what you said Augie, Augie it was um intrinsic my kind of motivation so apart from I was lucky to have great parents so apart from them there wasn't really anybody any other kind of guidance or path apart from do good in school go to college but a lot of people do that and they end up nowhere like so it was like what do I do in school and what do I do in college so I think that's the key thing that's a bit more than just do that you know I think is there a gap in the market for some sort of organization that goes into schools and gives them some other options into a future say okay you can go to college you can do the I know we always go on about the accounting thing but it is kind of almost like an accounting class in Ireland where it's like mm. that's where people go it's a profession it's, it's a profession. one of the biggest yeah. professions yeah, yeah it's it's stable and that's why I, I went into it yeah so um, I don't know if we go into the schools and uh, do some kind of uh, not-for-profit stuff might be might be interesting um, I think there is I think there is a lot of schools will probably now that we don't know you know they'll people will come in maybe te- tech people I'm sure there is but it should be in every school and it should be kind of compulsory some sort of guidance on that it's an interesting one because we we were like if the the main uh, hubspot office is right there beside uh kind of sheriff street area kind of a, a difficult area uh, to grow up in uh sometimes so we we do some like fundraising for them as well and you know uh, you know support their soccer team and stuff but maybe some actual like more than just sending the jerseys maybe send some humans in there and uh <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh yeah. it might be it might be interesting. But anyway, uh so I we digress. So oh you're you're living uh you know, you're you're coming up in a not a, a such an advantaged uh place. Um what 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 happened when you went to to college? What what did you do? Where did you go? Yeah, um I actually studied down in Galway. Um I went to GMIT and it's it's an interesting moment when you touch on the point around um career guidance or kind of that that mentorship in school, it's it's kind of a funny one because Whenever I was in primary school, I was um, classified as dyslexic, so I was I was taken out of Irish class. And when I entered my secondary school, I remember going to uh, I think you had to had to be reassessed essentially for dyslexia, and they were like, "Well, look, we have to essentially put you through this this uh, this test to kind of see what your level of dyslexia currently is." Um, and when I did it, it was it was that mild that they're like, "You no longer have an exemption," um, but because you haven't studied Irish for you know the last seven or eight years, we will just allow you to continue essentially doing like extra maths or extra English, and and just don't go into to the Irish class. And you know, as a, as a twelve or thirteen year old, that didn't really make too much difference. But it was when I got to my leaving cert year that I kind of realised all universities in Ireland required a second language and Irish in order to to, to enter. And it was kind of you know, I guess this kind of comes back to not really having you know, much in the way of kind of career mentors or in my family, knowing much about university or college or what that meant or what I need to do or what I need to study. Um, and I guess, it might, so I obviously went to to my career guidance, who was the, the person you, I guess, go to, to look to in school. And maybe somewhat to do with where I came from in the town and, and their perception of that area was kind of like, oh, well, just apply for an IT. You know, they do pretty much the same thing. Um, they have similar courses. You know, you're interested in business. And one of, the, one of the positive things was I, I always knew I was interested in business. There was there was never any doubt in my mind of what I wanted to study. It was always business. It was like I I love ent- entrepreneurship. I, I've always loved business. I've been very entrepreneurial growing up. Um, so so that choice was a no brainer. But it was like I'll just you know don't bother applying for any of the universities because you don't have Irish and you actually no longer have a strong enough exemption to be classified as exempt. And I remember being told like you can go and get tested yourself if you want to, and it'll cost you five hundred euros externally to do the test. But you're not going to pass that test because you're not 
severe enough as dyslexic anymore. And I was like, this is clearly like, you know, a problem that you guys have, have created for me in the setting that you put me in. I couldn't do Irish because you didn't allow me to do it. And now that's restricting me from going to university. And, you know, being honest, I was, I was very naive and I also didn't have much, m- many other sounding boards to go against. Um, so I just applied for IT, um, applied for, for DIT and for GMIT. And like I did a pretty good leaving cert. I, I think I had higher points than pretty much every every university business course in, in Ireland. Um, I, I believe I could have went to UCD or Trinity, but I didn't apply for any of them. And and I also wouldn't have been able to go due, due to the, the, the exemption from Irish. Um, so, so I found myself in GMIT. Which you know was was a great great four years for me, and and I, I, you know the people that I met there, the, the community that I that I found, and and Galway in general is, is a fantastic place to study. You know, as yeah. as a Love as a young guy growing up in Galway and, and, and moving away from home, there isn't many better places to go. Um, great 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 student life. You know, great city, um, relatively cheap in comparison to Dublin. Nearly everyone moves away from home, so you have much more of a kind of a you know that kind of a setting of, of, of being away from home. Everyone's living away from home, whereas I think in Dublin, a lot of people are forced to live at home just due to the, the kind of expense of, of rent in Dublin. Um, so yeah, like college years were, were were good for me. Like I, I always kind of excelled in college. I, I got an academic scholarship to GMIT due to to, to, to my leaving cert points, um, and that obviously supported me there. And, and again also got kind of full full government aid and, and a full grant in order to study which again is something that you know only realizing now that in this country we're extremely lucky to have you know and i think that access to free education and, and kind of government grant aid is something that really pushes and encourages people like myself to get an education who you know simply wouldn't have had a chance to otherwise you know there, there was no way that my mom could have afforded to pay fees let alone cost of accommodation and living expenses to live in galway so like it's that was a you know an, an amazing uh, addition for me we're incredibly lucky. So I, I I talk to people like most of the people that I work with are international because there's a lot of languages needed, all that type of stuff. Um, and e- like even some of the places where you think that would be, uh, you know, <laughs> that uh, university would be free or, you know, really cheap. They can't believe that I actually got paid to go to college because I was in whatever bracket my family income was in. I had the what was called the new era scheme. Um, yeah, it's, it's, actually, right. it's, it's actually now defunct, Mark. I don't think it's something. It's, it? I yeah. think it's something they have a different way of doing it. But I remember I used to get a check every month, um, as well as a. Um, it wasn't a lot of money, like, but it was enough money so I wouldn't have to worry enough to drop out to get a full time job. That's kind of it, like. And then you yeah. also got my uh, my rail and bus pass, uh, <laughs> so I could go anywhere. Just those little things, and I've just made it so much easier. It took. It takes the. It takes the. Uh, the the choice the hard choices that a lot of people would have to make out of it uh, and even from so I'm I was born in Canada and lived there on and off for nine years so the even in Canada where you think this is the they kind of portray Canada as like a utopia where it's you know free healthcare and all that type of stuff you actually pay a lot into it um, and if you want to go to a like a top tier university uh, and do like a master's degree you know you're talking sixty seventy thousand dollars. You know, these types of things, right? Yeah. Um, so in, in Ireland, we're incredibly lucky. Um, and there's also other things. This is another thing. Mark, I know, how many times have we talked about uh, the career guidance counsellor in our in our secondary school that we went to? But like, there was just... So probably much, too many. Probably too many times. Okay, but did you know that you can go... So, um, oh, you're talking about your, your, your guidance was, okay, you're not going to get into some universities, okay? So yeah, it goes to ITs, which I'm not, not saying anything about. I went to an IT. I, I got a... I think a good experience there but the do you know that you can go and study in stockholm for for free and do your university degree that no one tells you that 
and they speak English there and the courses are in English. <laughs> so there's all these other options. I love, I'd love to just go into uh, school and just have the kids for a day and go through every option that you could possibly think of and just kind of broaden the mind a little bit because, yeah, you know, one, the one track, if you don't fit into that, what, like you're saying, uh, okay, I want to go to Trinity. That's what you, you have to go there if you're going to be successful. That's kind of not what people think, but it's kind of the vibe that you get a little bit when you're mm-hmm. in secondary school. Um, and we talked to somebody last week uh, who's just finished his BCom degree and we're, we were really like he's he's probably what 22 or something he's just leaving anyway uh college and uh, he's going to chase his dream do like going full-time his own business and me and mark were basically i would say his cheerleaders last week what do you think mark <laughs> we were like <laughs> we're like yeah go for it you know, so i th- I think why why kids don't get the guidance that you're talking about Lair luke and saying going in and, and providing them some guidance is because there's, there's actually nothing in it for you to do that there's no incentive for you to go in and do that apart from just to make yourself feel good that day if you have a few spare hours. Okay. So I think there lies the problem. It's not, okay, so there's no, yeah, there's obviously no business in that. But there could be. What about the, uh, what's the stuff in America? Guidance can- being a guidance counselor within a school. Yeah, being a guidance ca- no. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, that's that, You see, that would be the obvious solution, but it obviously hasn't worked for every single person that we spoke to. What about those businesses in America? Um, I don't think they have them here yet. Um where they they say okay come to our university or our college or whatever we'll train you to do x y and z and then you pay us when you get a good job out of it have you heard of these at no. what's it called i forget the name of it now but it's a really big one really well funded in um in san francisco and what they do is they they teach you every you, they come in it's like a, a boot camp for whatever two years or three years or something and they teach you exactly what you need for a particular uh tech job and then you pay them back like so it's completely free uh but they own a percentage of your income for the next five years but they like try to push you into jobs and stuff because they don't it aligns their interests with your interest do you know what i mean um, that's win-win you know yeah sounds uh, great i think that that's, mm. that's something that we could uh we could build here and get some funding we had a we had a we're talking to the original uh venture capitalist of of ireland la- last week maybe we'd give him a call I think uh yeah. see if he's got any spare uh, cash. Anyway, anyway, so uh we're in uh, uh Galway. Galway, what a wonderful city to study in. Lo- every time I go over there I have a great time. The the vibe is so good walking around. Um you're so close to the sea, all that type of stuff. Um but when you're coming out of college, what are you thinking? What do you are you excited to get out of there? Are you worried about what what to do next? What's the story then? Yeah, it was a bit of a funny few years. Um in terms of my I think it was my, my third year in university in college was was a period where I had some some serious challenges with my mental health. Um, it was actually yeah in the summertime I essentially I went through what's known as like a, a psychotic breakdown. Um, so okay. so experiencing symptoms of psychosis where I was actually hospitalised for a number of weeks in a psychiatric ward. Um, it was a very very traumatic time to be honest, and it was something that that took a lot of time to understand and and then trying to, to get to the bottom of what had happened. And to be honest, after the first time, I pretty much just tried to ignore it. I was like, okay, this happened. Um, I just need to get on with life. I need to kind of almost forget that it happened and, and just pretend that everything's normal. And it happened then the second year in a row. Um, and the second year was was that time in my coming up to my third year exams, uh, about a week or two before my exams were starting. And pretty much the exact same symptoms. Um, psychosis is quite a challenging thing to explain, but it's... It, it's almost like depressive psychosis is where you have very depressed negative thoughts um, and you become delusional and, and can hallucinate in 
generally very negative ways. So you, you kind of, you feel the world maybe is imploding in on you and you feel like people are against you or the world is against you. And it all becomes very real in your head. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a severe psychiatric challenge. Oh my God. It's something, yeah, it was a, it was a very, very interesting time in my life. Um, and, and for me, I guess, because of the way that my dad passed away through suicide, um, he, he had suffered with bipolar disorder. Um, which is, you know, a very severe mental health disorder. And, you know, back whenever he passed away, there was very little, you know, research or support for mental health in general. And, and, and it was very misunderstood um, at, at the time. And I think that stigma that was surrounding that and, and obviously the lack of support potentially is what led to, to, to his circumstances. And for me, you know, I was very, very quick to assume or to jump on, on thinking that, you know, okay, I'm having very similar symptoms and I must have a similar disorder. I must have a similar mental health illness. And, you know, essentially self-diagnosed myself. I read everything I could read online and, you know, I was on medication for a number of months. I was in a, in a very, very poor place. I had to defer all of my college exams for that summer. I had six exams. I deferred every one of them. Um, and I spent two months essentially not leaving my house. And I was in a, a very, very dark place. And, and that place was where, you know, I essentially gave up. I was like, if, if I'm going to have to deal with this once a year or more, there's physically no way for me to hold down a job, let alone finish college, let alone have a family, like anything, you know, it, for me, it was just like this, if this is the way it is, you know, I, I simply can't live this way, you know, and it, it was, it was a point in my life where it was very, very challenging to accept. And I, I kind of got, you know, I went into a very, very low space, even after I came out of the, the episode itself, I went through essentially a number of months of, of, of suffering with depression because of that, that low feelings of, of, of hopelessness essentially of like I'm, 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 I'm you know I'm a hopeless case I, ca I can't finish college I'm not going to be able to get my exams I'm never going to be able to get a job you know who would, who would employ someone with, with a mental health issue um and then you know essentially you know I, it got to a point where I had no other choice and I was like look you, you need to try and understand this you, you need to go and get help and you need to try and overcome it and and through you know very very grateful that that you know my family pretty much put everything that they had into get, getting me the best therapy possible i went to see a cbt specialist up in Derry, who i, I seen for kind of eight weeks and went through a course of cognitive behavioral therapy to try and understand the kind of the thoughts that were going through my head and, and how to address them how to understand them i went to like uh, obviously through the hsc to, to psychiatrists and, and you know after a lot of a lot of therapy and a lot of understanding and a lot of talking you know my psychiatrist said to me like look you, you don't have a mental health illness. You know, you, you haven't been diagnosed with an illness. So, so you're very lucky that you haven't. Um, you have experienced two very acute and very serious mental health challenges over the last two years, but you don't have an illness. Um, and, and they're very much led by lifestyle choices and things that you're doing and, you know, lack of sleep, other things that were influencing you during in college years. And, and from that moment forward, it was like, okay, shit, I, I need to sort my, my, myself out. And I remember it was coming up to, I'd gone, I'd defer, all my deferred exams, I sat that summer and, and managed to you know, just about scrape through them all and, and got into my, my final year of college. And I think it was the October of that year, because I deferred my exams, my my grant funding was delayed. It was delayed for about six months. So that meant the money that I would normally get every year to kind of cover rent and cover cover cost of living um, was no longer incoming. Um, because of I deferred my exams, my payments were, were, were deferred until the results came through essentially. So I kind of spent three months living in Galway with pretty much no money um, and was, you know, family were kind of helping me out to pay rent, but I was very much living off, off, off little to nothing. And I essentially was like in that situation where I was forced to go, I was like, okay, look, I need to get a job on the side. I obviously couldn't work all summer because I was suffering very with my, with my mental health. I could, I could barely function or leave the house, let alone uh, go, go and get a part-time job. Um, and yeah, it was essentially there, you know, in maybe 
October, November of that year that I went out, got a part-time job for Christmas at Marks and Spencer's, started back doing a bit of running, completely cut out, you know, all of the negative forces in my life, stopped drinking, stopped really, you know, socializing in the scenes that I was socializing in. And and all of a sudden just just started to really turn this onto a positive stint and, and started to use that experience to drive myself forward and say, look, you can you can be the, the you know the, the use case of someone that can get over this and can move forward and can kind of get on with life and that was where kind of it stemmed into like in the space of two or three months from kind of being in a, in a really dark place to starting to really see the the, the, the other side almost and, and starting to kind of use that experience to try and help other people and, and I started speaking about it and it was the first time I'd ever spoke about it because I, I remember just having so much shame I remember just there was this shame looming over me of like there's something wrong with you you know you're 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 you know this is a problem with you and, and people you know will never accept you or you'll never be any make anything of yourself then I started talking about it and, and you know you start to realize that you know lots of other people experience lots of challenges with their mental health and it, it's actually a very normal thing to go through um and that gave me so much power and confidence in myself to say, okay, no, this is actually, this is actually, you know, it's, it's normal. Yes, it's a challenge, but, but it can be overcame and it can be managed and it can be dealt with. And I, I ended up started giving, you know, talks in public forums. And, and, and then, uh, you know, I mentioned the kind of thing around the charity. We, we then kind of a college project essentially, which was to, to develop a business plan. I was always mad into entrepreneurship and studied two or three electives in, in, in creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship. And one of those was to lead a, a kind of project which I chose to kind of essentially look at establishing a kind of a form of, of a nonprofit in the mental health space. Cause that was at the time, everything that was in my life was around that space. And, and I guess it just made sense to be like, look, how can I give back? How can I, how can I help others? How can I just kind of share this story on a more broad forum? Um, and it just, yeah, it, it took wind. Um, it went from kind of entering into to awards in a, in a college program to then getting uh, funding from a local enterprise office uh, with, with kind of Skull Enterprises who are, who are a company that are backed by the credit union in Galway. Uh, they gave me an office space to work out of for the kind of three months of the summertime. Nice. They gave me kind of a mentorship program to kind of look at how do I develop and, and build it to a further sense. So, so yeah, my my first year after university, when I, I, I you know got through that year, finished all of my exams, and and you know very very gratefully uh, got my my honors degree, and 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 that was something which you know a year previously felt like it was very very unobtainable. Um, and yeah, I guess I I hadn't applied for any grad jobs. Uh, you know, people always say it's like yeah, last year of college, get your grad entries into Google and Facebook and uh, your big four accounting firms and, and whatnot was, was never on my agenda whatsoever. I didn't apply for one, one job. Um, and I was just like, I'm, I'm going to try and run this passion. I'm going to see, see what, see what comes from it. Um, and yeah, so like the, my first year after graduating was uh, was a very interesting year and a really steep learning curve. Like, you know, I work in sales now and I kind of only realized back like the amount of selling that's involved in trying to set up a, a business, but more importantly, a nonprofit, you're essentially going with your hand out and asking for stuff pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the, I remember running like a health and wellbeing expedition and we got like 14 exhibitors to come and set up their stalls. Uh, we got like seven or eight keynote speakers to come and give talks. And I think about 50 people turned up, which, you know, is great in a sense. But when you've got 14 exhibitors hoping for a few thousand people coming through the door to give away their free samples, um, they probably weren't quite too impressed. But I think they all they appreciated the the, the drive behind it and, and I guess the mission that I was trying to support. But um, yeah, so that, that kind of was, was my year after. Like I was, I was essentially working three jobs. I worked to the Marks and Ventures part time. I, I got kind of promoted to kind of assistant manager there. So kind of working as a food stock manager and um, was working in, in, in charity kind of 20 or 30 hours a week. And then the company who gave me the funding, Skull Enterprises, they also took me on part-time doing kind of marketing and sales role for them. Um, so it was it was a busy, very busy year. I think generally working 70, 80 hours a week uh, at 21. And 
making not very much money to be very honest um but it was a steep learning curve is that is that part of the kind of it's a interesting thing as well because from from my point of view and i've known mark for a long time as well but like i've i've never had that type of uh like I've, there's been times in my life where i was unhappy or uh things weren't right but it was never got to like a dark place like we've talked about on the podcast when i moved to canada and we were out of <laughs> we were completely out of money when we first got there and the my wife was working at, at night time and i was uh working part-time during the day so we were kind of like ships in the night you know it was kind of a but it was very limited time but I always like, I was not crazy happy at that time, but I always thought I was going to get better. And is that the the biggest thing with mental health that you think it's not going to get better? Is that is it that the the there's no future to see? Because I the, I think me and Mark we struggle to even understand that because we were lucky enough to always have this kind of whatever. If it's if it's bad, I feel like it's going to get better. It's almost like a tilt towards that. And is that when that tilt goes the other way? Is that when? Is that like the trigger for these types of events or is it chemical? What, what's the trigger for that? Yeah, like it's a combination of a lot of things, to be very honest. Like, you know, being honest, I'm someone who growing up never really struggled, you know, in my teen years, you know, I would have been, had a good friendship group in school, you know, I played sports, I was always pretty active, I was a pretty confident guy, you know, I wouldn't have been, you know, someone who moped around and was feeling sorry for myself or, you know, who, who had a lot of, you know, who you would have seen to be down or seen to be be depressed potentially. Um, and even into my college years, you know, I was I was generally a pretty happy guy, you know, and I never really had many severe issues. And the only way that I can describe it, yeah, is it's like psychosis is quite different uh, to something like depression or anxiety because depression and anxiety can kind of are fluid states that you can kind of come in and out of. And, and, and they're very, very challenging to deal with, but they're probably less less acute in nature. Um, it, psychosis, it's essentially like you can't physically function in the day-to-day world. Like when, whenever you're in a psychotic episode and generally speaking, people with bipolar, people with schizoaffective disorder and, and, and a lot of different mental health disorders will go through episodes as they're called of, of psychosis. Um, but essentially like you, you, you don't function normally. Like your brain, a psychologist explained to me one day, a guy called Joe Griffin, who's, who's I seen, who was saying that your brain can't decipher what's dream state versus reality. So all of a sudden you're essentially, you don't know what's happening in, in, in day-to-day life. So you're unsure whether, whenever I'm actually physically sitting here awake, you're unsure, am I actually sitting here awake or is it a dream? Oh my God. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a very strange, strange place to be at. But like generally speaking, it manifests in very negative, uh, destructive thoughts. So um, for me, there was like paranoid delusions or negative delusions that people were going to harm me or that I was uh, going to harm myself. I think one thing that might sum it up, I remember like a feeling of, of like, I felt that worthless that I thought that I wanted to be homeless and to be essentially like people to shun me when they walk past me. I felt that was how, how bad of a person that I thought I was in my own head was that everyone physically in the world hated me and thought I was a piece of dirt. Uh, and therefore I wanted to be, to be worse than that. Even if that means I wanted, yeah. And it's, it's very, very strange to, to explain. And I, I'm probably not even doing it justice, but it's, it's a hard one to get around and, I, and essentially it was more so when, whenever I came out of that period, the preceding six months that followed were a very low depression and, and the depression came out of hopelessness for the future. Cause it was like, if I am going to suffer with that kind of an issue and, it, and that maybe lasted four to six weeks where I was essentially in that kind of a headspace where it's extremely negative, extremely um, challenging. The six months following was just like, I'm, I can never live. I was like, if I have to do that every year, like you, you can't hold down a full-time job. You can't, you know, finish a university. You can't do your exams. You already had to defer your exams as it was, and it was just this feeling of hopelessness. It was just like I am hopeless. I am, I'm, 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 you know, I'm 
not a useful human. I would be better off to not be here. And, and you know, I'd be better off for my family's sake for, you know, I, I seeing a girl at the time. I was like, she would be better off without me. It was, and, wow. you know, very, very negative uh, thoughts about my life and about where I could go. And is there, so with the, the work that you did afterwards and maybe talked to a lot of different people that had different maybe uh, challenges that they were working through, is there is there any advice that you'd give those guys? Would you say, like, definitely talk to uh, to a professional about that or is it uh, family and friends first? I was wonder. Uh, I, say, I say there's so many people out there that don't know which, which is the best way to do, uh, to go about that or a lot of people think, if I sweep this under the rug, maybe this will just go away. Do you know that kind of way as well? Is there yeah. something to that? Or? Yeah, like it, it's it's a big thing that I that I try and talk about as often as I can, which is like encouraging people to talk. No matter what the situation is, it can only get progressively worse in your own head until you address it, until you, you know, essentially accepting it is also very important. It's very easy sometimes for someone else to see that someone is depressed or going through a low period. You telling someone, oh, mate, I think, you know, you look pretty depressed. Maybe you should go and see someone. That's never really going to cut it because they haven't yet accepted themselves that there's an issue there that they have to address. So I think it's, you know, understanding and saying like, okay, there's something not right with me right now. I don't really feel myself. I haven't felt myself for a while. And the first thing to do is essentially, yeah, generally, ideally, tell people that are close to you. And people are obviously very generally very afraid of this because like, oh, they're going to judge me. They're going to, you know, say like, this is unfair on them, whatever it might be. The truth is that people are very accepting and very supporting. People only ever want the best for their friends and their family, and therefore they're always going to be encouraging and, and, and positive in this situation. And it all of a sudden feels like a burden is taken off their shoulders because all of a sudden this big mask that they've been putting on for so long, this persona that they're trying to live up to, even though they're suffering on the inside, all of a sudden that's gone and they can just be real with themselves and say, no, actually the last six months have been absolutely shit. I've been really struggling to get out of bed every morning. I'm considering quitting my job because I get no value from it. And my relationship is in the toilet because I haven't had any energy to give to it. And you say, look, that's okay. You can have that period, but you have to address it and, and, and try and move past it. And the next step is, is, is 100% going to speak to someone professionally. Um, whether that's a, a psychotherapist, a psychologist, you know, going into hospitals, seeing a psychiatrist, um, because they understand these things. They understand the, the psychological neural pathways in your mind and, and what's causing you to feel that way. And the thing with mental health as well, people often feel very guilty because it's like, you know, I have everything that I should need in life and therefore how can I be sad or how can I be depressed? It's like, it, it doesn't matter, you know, and, and you can compare yourself to, you know, saying like, oh, there's kids starving in Africa and they have it so tough. Why am I sitting here in my lovely apartment in Dublin complaining about the fact that I don't feel happy, even though I'm getting, I'm going to have a great job and I'm paid well, because it simply just isn't that straightforward. Like if you are unwell and you're mentally unwell, you just are. And that's, that's all there is to it. And, and accepting that and saying it's okay to be, be unwell for a little while is perfectly fine. And like the other thing with it as well is like, I think a lot of people talk about mental health as if it's something that you have it and then it's gone. Like, I still suffer with my mental health. Everyone has mental health and will go up and down with their mental health. And as you mentioned, whether that's that you go through a lower period, you might not be depressed or have to go on medication or see a therapist. Everyone goes through ups and downs. And I think, therefore, it's very important to understand where you're at at all times. Check in with yourself and look at like, how am I doing? How is my life right now? How do I feel about things, my relationships, my family? Um, and ultimately take, you know, practice things that, that make you feel better. You know, like... Okay. What are those Anyone things that, that, are, speak to? That, that really got you out of that? Is there, were you, did you go into kind of like meditation? Was there any kind of process that you went through, you know, or is it? 
Yeah, like time. meditation was never never really sat with me. I, I've tried it quite a few times and done it quite a few times, but it's just something that, that hasn't been a big one for me. Like therapy was definitely the number one positive, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is essentially looking at understanding your thoughts and essentially using a scientific approach to almost change them or more so assess the reality behind them. So looking at, okay, I'm feeling like this. Why am I feeling like that? And is there is there any evidence to support that opinion? And that really helps because I'm a very logical person. I was like, oh, okay, no, that doesn't really make sense. Let's stop worrying about that. Um, the next thing for me, it was like, people always say there's three core things of, of kind of health and well-being, which is your sleep, your nutrition, and your exercise. And it actually does just simply come down to those three things. If you are looking after yourself, like sleep for me, is, it was my number one trigger. If I didn't sleep, that was when I would really break down and, and go into low periods. Um, but essentially, if you're sleeping properly and you're feeling energized and revived every day, that's a really big boost for your mind and a big boost for, for, for everything in your energy systems. The second one is looking at for me is like my meditation is exercise. Like I I've, I've would say people, you know, I'm probably addicted to exercising because I know how positive it is for my mind. It's like, I don't know, I'm someone that's like, I will train, you know, five, six days most weeks and physically because I know it gives me such a boost in my energy. Like, and especially when it's gone into habit, like if you train in the morning, your mind is, is, is in such a better positive place for the day. And, and that for me is a, is a really positive thing. You know, whatever time of the day it suits you, but for okay. me, it's like I try to do it in the mornings. Can I ask you one question on that? I, I see that I see people use that uh, exercise as a, a really beneficial tool to help with their mental health. Have you seen, I think I've seen it. I think it's quite obvious. Some people use it as a crutch and if they say get injured, they will fall deep back into the depression. How do you get around that? How do you not make it your crutch? It's, it's a very good question, and, and mm. I'm not sure I have the answer, to be honest, mm. because I, I think it's a very important crutch for a lot of people, and it, it can be people's sole release to get rid of that energy. Um, and therefore, I think if someone gets an injury, I think there's always other ways that you can still train. You know, I fractured a bone on my knee last year in, in, in August. Um, I was, you know, couldn't do anything with my legs for probably three months in terms of physical exercise. Um and therefore, it was like I would still go to the gym four days a week and do upper body sessions with no legs involved, no no cardio, no running, no cycling. Mm-hmm. And 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 for me, it's like, but yeah, I, I agree. Like, I wouldn't say that it's a danger or that it's a bad thing to rely on exercise because it's it's extremely beneficial to every single person, whether you have a challenge with your mental health or not. It's a really positive thing to have in your life. Some form of physical exercise, you know, both for the physical attributes or benefits in terms of reducing, uh, you know, problems with, with like heart problems, uh, obesity, all of these other physical factors, but also the mental stimulation that it gives someone. So, I would encourage that, like, yeah, if you have if you have an injury, if you hurt your elbow, you can still run, you know, or if you hurt your leg, you can still do a few pull-ups or push-ups. Um, there's always something that you can do. A yoga, or pilates, or something. A bit of yoga, pilates, yeah, and it doesn't have to be this go for an hour and a half gym session do a 15 or 20 minute hit session in the morning and, and just get your energy levels up. And, and that, that for me is, is, is kind of the, the key point is like, I don't think you should sacrifice exercise for anything. I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have it as an important part of your, 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 your structure and your day to day. Um, and yeah, that would be my advice. It's, it's an interesting. One. I think that different, I get different uh, feelings from different types of workouts. This is the, this is what I've been noticing because I've been doing the, I was just talking to Ogi before this about the, uh, about the Ironman training that I'm doing and how, at the beginning of May, when I started, I couldn't swim in the sea properly at all, and now it's I'm doing lengths, and the it's it's become the my favorite form of exercise, and this is so strange because it's what most people hate about triathlon. <laughs> I hate, but it's the one that what puts people off doing triathlons uh, is the swimming. Everyone I talk to has always said I'd love to do that, but I couldn't do the the two k swim at the beginning, 
Um, but there's something when you go swimming, especially we're talking about the morning. Sometimes I go before work uh, if if the you know if it's not too choppy or whatever. Um, and the whole day, it's like I'm floating for the whole day. It's a different. I feel completely different uh, than if I went for uh, even a run or a cycle or lifting weights or anything like that. There's something about being in the water. It's like this weird connection with the nature. I feel like a. I feel like I'm part of the. Like a shark. I feel like a shark, Mark. You know what I mean? Like so. <laughs> no. Uh, no, but I, 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 it's hard to explain, and it sounds. Uh, I feel like this sounds ridiculous, but it's uh, the there is some sort of high that I'm getting from being in the water for that long, for up to an hour, without being, uh, without panicking. Without, it's like I'm just you get into a rhythm, and it's like a like a flow state. Flow, flow state. There's no earphones. There's no music pushing you. There's no, you're just literally just, it's like nothing. You're just uh, floating in, in space, you know? So mm-hmm. um, I'd recommend people get into that if they're, if they're looking for that type of, uh, that type of high. But like, like uh, Augie said beforehand, some people uh, are sinkers. I've got like, uh, I was, no, was never a strong swimmer beforehand, uh, but I've got the most buoyant uh, of any, of any, I think of anyone ever. I could never float. I would never sink. <laughs> I don't it's know. Your bar, your chest. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I just sit there. I just bob up and down. If I if I get tired, I just stop moving and nothing happens. I'm just completely flat. Uh, so it's a it's so, a strange thing, buddy. So Ogie, you mentioned I think it was three things. So you think you talked about two? What would be the the third? Yeah, I think the, the final one is just like nutrition or, 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 or what you're eating. And like, I think the, the fuel that you feed yourself is very, very important. Um, and that for me is kind of the, the third pillar that, that I kind of live by. And for me, it's a funny one because as you mentioned around like an over-reliance, like I definitely would be extremely rigorous in my kind of habits and routines. Um, and I've kind of got to a place where I feel like I need to. So that, that, And that's definitely something that I'm trying to address is like, you know, can I be a little bit easier on myself more often? You know, can I go for a weekend away without being too concerned about the fact if I don't sleep properly, I'm going to feel bad for the week afterwards. Um, you know, or can I take two days off the gym and not feel guilty that I haven't trained for those days and still be kind of up with me quite well? Or, you know, can I eat bad food at the weekend and and not feel like it's going to impact my, my moods or whatever? So it, it is a process. And I think that's something which like at the very, very start, like I remember like the year after I kind of went through all those experiences, it was like everything was so by the book i was like i i have to i have to sleep eight hours every single night i have to eat really good food every day and i have to train every day that was your medicine and that like. that was my mental kind of toolkit but, but that also becomes exhausting in a sense like you know because as you said like mark it's like if you're trying to live by these ideals every single day you, you almost forget to live you know you almost forget to actually look at the enjoyment in your life and, and the hobbies that you enjoy doing the people you enjoy seeing and, and i do think that's a real danger especially when so you know people maybe get really into fitness or or, or really into health it's like oh wait no i can't go out and have a nice meal or i can't have a beer or, or whatever it might be and like like alcohol is, is definitely a very negative substance uh, it's, it's a depressant but if you do it in moderation you can have a few beers at the weekend with your mates you know you're not going getting absolutely smashed for three days in a row you know it's it's very much okay and i think that's what i've kind of slowly tried to reintroduce into my life again is like okay you know go for a weekend away with the lads go you know like go and enjoy yourself have a few beers and also go easy on yourself if you're not at your peak performance for, for the week following, you know, because I think especially working in sales, you're always expected to be operating at 110%. You're always working towards targets. You're always in this really high motivation environment. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I personally set myself very high standards and therefore it's like, I will give, give myself shit if I'm not performing at that level on a Monday after I've been away for a weekend. It's like, no, no, wait a minute, Ogie. You always perform at a very high level. Your performance ratings, your targets, everything is, says that. Therefore you can allow yourself a Monday 
to take it easy and go for three coffee breaks and block your calendar out for half an hour because you know you, you don't need to have that call with a client until it's Tuesday. Um, and, and that's something that I think is going to come with time. And it, it's look, it's it's an ever evolving process. And I think everyone is always trying to find that you know pivotal point of balance. Everyone talks about balance and how important balance is, and and it definitely is. But we probably obsess on it too much. And I think it's just like do what makes you feel good more often than not is kind of what I try and do. It's like, and if you, if you stay by that, you're generally going to feel pretty good. If you tip it too far the wrong side and you're, you know, enjoying yourself too much and forgetting about all of those routines, you're probably going to slip into a low place, but vice versa. If you're spending way too long trying to be the perfect person and have your health and well being and exercise and sleep in 100% sync, your social life is probably going to fall to shit. And therefore relationships, mm. family, everything else are the result of that becomes affected and they're also a really big part of your holistic well-being so it's like 100%. there's a lot of different moving parts that are always happening and occurring at the same time and that's kind of how i would look at it like i think it's a really good tip there just to be good to yourself a little bit or to be go easy on yourself i think uh lower could have been higher but to your happiness shouldn't be on a figure you know that you're doing your best if it didn't work out it didn't work out but i always think that but the salespeople the the crushing number and then the forecast the forecast give me your forecast i'll hold you to that what do you mean hold me to it but i'm gonna do my i'm gonna try to make as much money as i can i just think sometimes i know we're trying to push people in technology and i right now i'm kind of uh in a way managing eight different sales teams all over uh EMEA. so i'm trying to keep them motivated and now i need to get the forecast from them now so i, I get a <laughs> i kind of see it from the other side now but I think there's a lot of pressure in the in the sales uh, game, you know. So it's it's important to say, you know, put things in perspective if you can, or zoom out, you know. Yeah, but big yeah, time, big that, time. That's my two cents on that. So we are actually at three quarters of an hour here, and we wanted to pick your brain. We might change uh, change gears a little bit here on uh, the the experience that you've had in Google. So when you get to what what was your did you go straight into Google from uh, what you were doing, or did you have a, like a tech sales job before you got in there? Or how did you get into the the kind of Google space? Yeah, no, so I kind of fast-tracked the, the middle few years here, but essentially um, after the year at the startup and the few few different companies in Galway, I was like, okay, I need to go and pursue my, my degree and, and get, a, get a, a real job, as I call it. Um, so I studied finance, went into banking, um, worked with BNY Mellon in, in the kind of corporate fund side of things for, for about a year or so. And then from there, I transitioned to Google. And it was something that I planned to do previously, but just didn't have a contact, couldn't get a way in, um, ended up adding a person on LinkedIn who was a manager on the team about a year previously, but never had the courage to write to them. And the year later, they posted something up, a job posting. And I was like, you know what, why not? Just drop a message, see what happens, Drop them, send over my CV. And she was like, yeah, look, really like your CV, really like your experience. Um, love to have a chat with you. Met her for a coffee initially. And she's like, yeah, look, I'll put you through for a referral. I think you'd be a really good fit for the company. Um, and yeah, I sent you went through the interview process, which was, it was rigorous in, in a sense in terms of the number of interviews, but none of them were, were like overly challenging or, or like, you know, trying to really put you under pressure. It's very much trying to understand your skill set and get the best from you. Um, I think it was like four interviews in total, five interviews in total um, upon entry. And yeah, from there, I think that was but three, we could go nearly three and a half years now. Um, and yet being very honest, I didn't know what PPC stood for, uh, pay-per-click advertising. I, I didn't know what it meant before I interviewed for Google. Um, I, had done a general business degree. I did kind of marketing for my third year uh, ordinary degree, and then I did finance for my honors degree. Um, 
And yeah, to be honest, what really drew, drew me to it was when I was in Galway in the enterprise center, I used to work with a lot of startups, a lot of small companies, and we used to run a mentoring program. So I love that side of enterprise, love talking to business owners and, and kind of seeing how they're growing their business. And Google gave me the opportunity to tie my kind of analytical and uh, skill set to uh, working with enterprises and working with companies to help them grow. And that kind of was really what drew, drew me to the role itself is like, we work in advertising sales, but essentially the core of my job is helping e-commerce businesses in the UK grow their their, their, their market share and, and grow their market cap. Um, so that for me, I think is, it was a really interesting uh, drive. And yeah, I've been been there ever since and like in enjoying it. Um, I'm exploring some things at the moment in, in, in other areas um, uh, in terms of what I'm doing with myself. But yeah, no, that's that's where I'm at. The, the, the pay-per-click, it's a great, I guess, industry for pay-per-click because it's, you you can tie it to ROI quite quite well. Like I work with companies uh, for, for digital marketing as well, and w- in HubSpot we manage um, advertising uh, across platforms. And it's for the B two B sales and stuff like that. It is a little bit trickier to. It's a, you have to have a different mindset. I think it's not going to be tying exactly. We spent X, we got X back. It's very difficult to kind of nail down. But in e commerce, I like the way it's you know you can have a little bit more of a, a path to they saw this ad then they bought this pair of uh, shoes or you know whatever mm-hmm. um so when you talk to say kind of companies that are trying to level up what's the most important thing that they that they can do is it simply pu- like put as much money as possible as they can afford or is it uh, the creative element um is it what's the what's going to make the difference i know it's a, a huge question to <laughs> yeah no it's, it's a good question right so like the, the, i'm going to split it into two parts right so the first one for me, right, is a performance marketing in terms of Google, which is pay-per-click, pay essentially with shopping ads and search ads, right? So essentially someone searches in the browser for a product and we serve them an ad of that product and, and, the, and the providers who sell it. And that is a money-making machine. Like it is direct ROI on the table. You pay this for a click, we will drive you a sale and we'll give you money in, your, in, in the bank. And it genuinely works extremely well. The other side of things though is, Brands can become over-reliant on that and not look at building a brand. And when that happens, you get to a very dangerous point where your over-reliance on media spend is only on direct response or kind of sales activation activities. And when you rely heavily on, on sales activation, you're very susceptible to competition. And therefore, if competitors are trying to push pressure on that auction or those, those ad auctions, all of a sudden it becomes very hard for you to compete. And all of a sudden your margins get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Mm. And that's where essentially having a brand presence and having you know more to your story and, and communicating your brand very effectively and building customer loyalty is what's going to succeed in the long run. And I've seen this in a, one industry, I'll, I'll just use as, as an example. Um, if you look at in the UK, the, the, the e-commerce market for online books, right? So there's probably six to eight uh, medium-sized uh, book resellers in the UK who you know would have dominated the marketplace before Amazon entered. And generally speaking, very few of those brands had a very strong brand presence, right? So people go to look for a book, they know what book they're looking to buy, and they then essentially land on whichever seller has that book for them at generally the cheapest price because it's the exact same book. Um, and all of a sudden, they're all competing for this ad space. They're all competing to serve their ads on, on, on the top of Google listings. Um, and they're working off quite small margins. Book industry doesn't have massive margins. All of a sudden, what happens if those companies haven't built a brand, which a lot of them didn't, no one is going to them organically and no one is searching for their brand term to drive traffic to their website to buy from them through the fact that they know that they're a reputable and really great book reseller. They're just going to Google every time and they go back to Google and search for the, the latest book that they're trying to buy. 
And when Amazon came into the marketplace and put a lot of pressure on those auctions, for example, it became very, very challenging for these small independent book resellers to still stay competing because they're all essentially have the even even uh, market share or, or opportunity to show an ad. But so does Amazon and so does any other big player who comes into that market. So like Amazon are a very, very powerful player in the e-commerce space. And when they come and put pressure into auctions, if you haven't built a credible brand and you haven't differentiated yourself enough, it's going to be very challenging for customers to still want to go to you when essentially what Amazon are doing in that sense is they're trying to acquire customers to Prime, right? So they're trying to acquire customers to sign up to Prime, then they'll use free delivery. They don't mind if they lose money or, or make very, very small margins on a book that they sell. Wow. It's more about the long-term play because they know how much value a customer has for them long-term. Whereas the small independent players are more reliant on the direct ROI from that sale. Um, and I like it's a discussion that I very regularly have with clients is like, you're, you might be making a lot of money right now. Like we have clients who will make 10, 15, even 20 times to one on their investment from direct response advertising. Like it's, it's very, very lucrative. Um, and generally speaking, you get to a certain point of saturation. You get to a certain point where you know you have a decent product offering, you know you're at a decent price point, and you know that there's a de- decent customer base who are searching for your products, and you can sell at a decent ROI. Whenever you, you then have two choices, right? So if you want to continue to grow as a business, you either look at how do you increase your product offering to get more coverage in those queries, or can you afford to decrease your margin to drive more top-line revenue growth? And this is where the kind of tipping point as such comes is like there's always a point of saturation where that kind of uh, diminishing returns will, will start to occur. And it's, it's, it's an interesting avenue because it, like for me, it's like, okay, at that point or actually ideally before that point, you should really start investing quite heavily in brand and building that brand presence because then you have loyalty and then you have people who are returning to buy from you specifically as opposed to just looking at products. And look, this obviously depends on what you're selling because if you have a completely undenominated product and you are selling the exact same as other resellers, it's very, very hard to build a brand as such, apart from being synonymous with providing good customer service and having good uh, you know, f- website functionality. Whereas if you have something that actually has a presence and has a, you know, a, a unique offering, then a brand is obviously, again, can be much, much stronger in that space. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I got no. on a bit of a tangent, but it's, no, no. It's, uh, it's great to have an insight in, in what's going on there. If you, so to just to take one of your points and run with it, if you were, if, if you had a couple of million uh, to start a, I mean, not a couple, a couple hundred thousand to start a, a business uh, and you wanted to be, you wanted to game the system is the wrong word, but set up, set up your business or set up your, your branding or your product offering uh, in a way that would be the most beneficial for pay-per-click. This might be the way, <laughs> Mark, this might be the wrong way to set up a business, but no, no, let's a, say, that's a good it, question. Let's, let's say if we had to, if we were building the a machine to the best, take advantage of this uh this way of doing business with pay-per-click advertising uh what industry or what what type of product that would be um or what would you say like a subscription model what, what are you thinking yeah no it's a really good point right so i'm gonna again so there's with the way i would segment it right is two different business types you're gonna have e-commerce and lead generation um for e-commerce you're looking at product development and coming up with a product so there's two sides this is either you you become innovative and you come up with a new product that there isn't necessarily demand for and you have to create that demand. That's something which, being honest, from the onset, there isn't going to be much value from, from driving PPC on Google because there isn't people going to search your product. On the flip side, if you look at trying to capture a trend and look at what is there already seriously high demand for and people are searching for and want to buy, and can you sell that to them? And can you sell it to them competitively at a decent rate? And therefore, you're essentially automatically entering into a marketplace where you know there's demand for that product. There is competitors, but you know there's also a, a lot of customers who are willing to buy. And therefore, 
you have as much chance as anyone else does whenever it comes to that search auction. Because okay. once your landing page is relevant, your product is relevant, and your, your customer experience is good, you're going to have a list of essentially four or five brands serving search advertising, and then you're going to have shopping listings across the top with the product. So that if you want to look at the easiest way to enter a market and drive sales, it's look at what's already working and what there's already demand for. If you want to look at long-term success, so like I said, that would be like, if you want to make a quick book, that's what I would look at doing. If you want to look at long-term success, I would be looking at more of having a unique offering and building a brand around it, which is going to take longer to invest up front. You're going to look at YouTube advertising, social advertising, and kind of tell that story to those customers and really in, 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 you know, engross them in that journey. And then use PPC to activate and drive those sales once there's demand built up. Um, the other side of the business, which is an interesting one to look into, is lead generation. Lead generation is a way that you know people make very lucrative uh, amounts of money because Lead generation, you don't need to have a physical product. You don't even really need to have a physical business. You can essentially be three or four guys running a really effective lead generation website and then selling those leads on to providers. So insurance, lending, um, healthcare, a number of different industries in, in, in the lead gen space are very lucrative because they're also very competitive, right? So like I worked with, say, for example, in the past, um, like insurance lead gen providers. And what they essentially do is they'll set up an, an aggregator site where they will uh, they, they get listed as an aggregator. They don't provide any insurance products themselves, but they essentially compare prices or get quotes for, for, for bigger insurance companies. Insurance companies will pay quite a premium for a qualified lead or a customer who's came through giving their information to one of these providers. And therefore, there's, there's essentially automatic dynamic auctions that are happening on the back end where these are re buying and reselling loans to insurance companies. Um, it's, it's a very, very, uh, it's a very competitive industry because a lot of people already know this. Like this, yeah. this is not like some new information that I'm, I'm sharing here for the first time. There, there is a lot of space, especially in the UK. Um, like I've seen, I've seen lead gen finance clients going from spending uh, 50 grand a month on Google advertising to spending 2 million a month on Google advertising. Wow. And that's simply the scalability of how quickly you can grow a lead gen business if you can do it effectively. And it's all about conversion rates. It's all about you're going to pay a real premium to get a customer onto your website. Now, let's just say, for example, you could be paying 10 euro per click onto your website. That's a, that's a premium to get a customer there. You are essentially needing to convert that customer at about a 40% conversion rate in order to drive profit. 40% conversion rate on site is extremely high. You'll know that from HubSpot working in, in, in that space. Oh, yeah. And therefore, in order to do that, you obviously have to have a very efficient website and you have to be serving against really relevant terms that are going to drive that, that, that action on the website whenever they get there. And even then you're working at really small margins and that's why you have to scale very quickly in order to make actual profit. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the three different opportunities there. So yeah. like short-term cash, go after a product that already has demand and sell it and have a good uh, offering of that same product. Um, Long-term, grow a brand that have a unique product offering, but you need to grow a brand first as opposed to just relying on PPC or focus on the lead gen side of the business. If you want to activate quick, build a really functioning lead gen site, really good back-end relationships with, with, with providers, either in loans or insurance, and then essentially generate leads through really high, highly relevant terms that people are looking for, and then essentially sell them on to, to, to the uh, providers. It's so interesting that you said that last one as well, because we had this, uh, me and Mark, we were kind of going a little bit stir crazy when you no, know, it was proper lockdown, when you couldn't leave the, the 2K, we were going a little bit mad. And we, I think we did like a two hour podcast, just two of us on, uh, it was, we call it the, the post COVID idea cast where we were just going back with ideas. And one of the ones that I thought about was that this kind of lead gen business as well. And I was trying to, I, we Mark, you know what? We didn't really figure it out on the, on the podcast, but maybe we'll take that offline. And we had some, that's some bad ideas. Let's say when I listened back, but there were some good ideas, there's some gems in there as well. But, um, cause I remember, uh, I worked for a company when I first got to Canada 
um that was uh we talked about before but they sold um uh, uh, what would you call them like electronic uh stair lifts you know for uh elderly or disabled people um so i was a salesperson for that um and we used to buy leads from these kind of aggregator sites or whatever and i told like mark that it was about 980 dollars or something we pay for a fucking lead and yeah uh like the 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 price of one of these things is like 15 grand so it's 15x if it closes so i get it but i just when they told me that so so when people were complaining sales people were complaining about leads our manager was like you have to call these people into the ground because we're paying a thousand for every uh, lead that we're getting so my point is there there is a lot of opportunity out there and also like it doesn't have to be uh, on the face of that that looks a little bit not dodgy but a little bit you know kind of like you're not doing the actual uh service yourself but i think there can, can be a value in uh sending people to the right uh the right kind of vendor um it doesn't have to be kind of a sleazy thing you can actually say okay we only work with you know really good businesses that are going to serve uh, the people that we're uh that we're working with or that we're generating money from so like i think yeah. that there's something in that and i think the scalability if you do it right could be there as well um so i really like that one mark we need to talk <laughs> yeah no, Ogi, i think i'd say a lot of um google adwords customers come and go very quickly and they try and they give up they don't I've, I've used it a good few times different companies and there's probably different reasons why why, why it fails for some people probably you don't structure their campaign properly maybe don't take the, the advice that's offered um on board probably simply just don't understand but i think a big thing is actually being afraid to put money into it so they're, they're, that's the elephant in the room how much money do you actually need like i know it's a big question and it's gonna differ but like do you ever see some companies putting you know spending hardly anything and and converting well or do you actually have to have a few grand a month that you're going to commit let's use for example selling my artwork online or, or limited edition prints if i was to use google adwords <clears throat> campaign how much money would, would i really need to put in it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's, it's a challenging question to answer because it's it's obviously very different across every industry, right? So the big mm. thing that I would look at, right, is, is how do you track and what are you trying to achieve, right? So if you're, if you're an e-commerce business and you're trying to drive online sales, understanding, you know, what return on ad spend that you need to get from that. So for example, if you're looking for a five to one to make profit, you know, that is a really good benchmark to then say, okay, if we have really solid tracking set up on the back end for e-commerce, which is so easy to do within Google ads, you can then say, okay, for every, you know, 10 pounds that I put into this platform, I'm getting back 50 in sales. And all of a sudden, you know, you can say that, okay, let's just do that 10 pounds a day and try and get one sale a day. There's not much scale to that. And there's not much volume of data running through the account. So it's going to struggle to really ramp up and it's going to struggle to guarantee you that one sale every day. Generally speaking, we would try and look at something that would drive about 20 sales a day as a decent starting point, right? So if, if you're looking at that, you're then looking at kind of a 200, 200 pounds a day budget in order to, to kind of drive that, that return on investment. And, you know, that could be on a small, unique kind of group of product offerings. Um, it, but it, look, it, essentially, the, the big thing with it is that it can be done at any scale. And then the reason that is, is you have complete fairness and equality to enter into an ad auction, no matter how big your overall budget is based on the cpc for that auction so if you're only willing to pay for 10 customers a day in terms of clicks you'll only get 10 customers a day but you will still compete those 10 times that you show up you're still going to serve an ad on that search list search listings results and 
essentially have the same chance as one of those bigger competitors, for example, getting that click to your website versus theirs. Um, and you know, it, it then does come down to like, like people often really underestimate the like the website experience and the customer experience and reviews and, and things like this because customers, as you can see, have so much access to information and data that they they don't just go and buy something, especially something out of the blue, especially if it's a larger ticket item. They're going to compare, they're going to contrast across different sites. And price is a really big sticking point, but things like free delivery are like over 80% of people in the furniture industry um, cite free delivery as their biggest impacting factor on, on buying cycles, which like, you know, people are like, furniture is obviously a very expensive item, so shipping can be very expensive if it's not offered for free. But often people will have really heavy discounts, but still charge delivery fees. It's like, do you realize if you actually didn't charge any discount but gave free delivery, your conversion rate would be substantially higher. And there's different nuances like that that people wouldn't be aware of. Um, but yeah, like it, it, honestly, there, there is no set amount. There is no starting point. The more that you have, the quicker that you can scale is ultimately, and it's the same with anything. But it comes down to the, the pivotal point is is making your website convert and, and getting the right traffic there. So if you're targeting the right terms or the right products, you, you need that traffic that's landing on your website to actually transact and purchase. Because we can send loads of traffic. Like Google has, that's one thing that Google has no shortage of is is people searching on their browsers. So we can, you know, there's millions upon millions of customers who are searching on, on Google, but it's all about, can we actually offer them what they want whenever they come to, to the platform? And can we serve them an ad that's relevant, bring them to our website and, and get them to buy our product? And, and that's where, for me, it is the pivotal point of like, if you're starting anything, doing something that there's, you know, there's people who are already searching for and they're looking for what you want to sell, as opposed to trying to convince them of something to, to buy that they didn't want to buy mm -hmm. in the first place. It's, yeah, well, it's, I I use Shopify for my website, and uh, so that kind of takes, in my opinion, that takes care of the the user yeah. experience and purchasability, you know. So you could probably like if you like on on your point, Mark. It's like mm. you want to have it that mindset of okay, I'm a I'm someone who searched for this. I click through. What happens then? Am I served up something that's really easy to like a like a Let's just I know a not to to cut into margin so it's not uh, profitable for you, but say if, just for your, your print business, let's say you offer them a first-time thing of X, off, uh, X percent off or uh, if you send it to a friend, we'll give you X amount or something, like kind of like a, a pop-up that they see straight away. So they, it's an easy thing for them to buy. They get value straight away. And then you can nurture them through the emails that you collect, for example. Something, so instead of right now when people go to a, an art website, they might be looking for... A gift is probably a, a lot of the a lot of the traffic that you would be getting people trying to f find something that you know especially because you're doing a lot of celebrity stuff so if they go there and they have they've got 50 things that they might buy it's hard for them ever like if there's two things that they can buy x or y that it, that might be a better converter than having 50 things I don't know. I'll get my way off here. I may be. No. So Wait. like the, the the one thing that I would look at there right is so yeah if if, if you're trying to sell art online right. The, the chances are right, that the pool of people who are out there looking for exactly what you sell right now might be small. So therefore, you, you're having to try and expand the coverage as, 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 um, as Luke alluded to there, like maybe going into gifting terms. So then all of a sudden you're looking for like gifts for Father's Day, gifts for him, gifts for her, birthday gifts. And because that, that, that term in, in, in nature is very generic, you, know, you could be looking for any amount of different products. You're essentially looking for inspiration or ideas, um, but it's essentially quite a, an upper funnel uh, term, which means that the conversion rates on a term like that are obviously much lower, but down it can be valuable down the funnel. And that's kind of where it just gets challenging, because as I mentioned earlier on, right, you generally will always have a, a set group of, of terms that will drive really strong value. And depending on the industry you're in, that, that group can be 
really small or niche, or it can be much larger. And it's also be about like, how do you go beyond that niche, right? So if you guarantee that you have, say, like five terms that, that drive someone is searching for exactly what you sell, they're going to buy it. Or they're, they're, there's a really high chance they're going to buy it. But whenever you start going into broad terms around like gifting products or, you know, inspirational ideas, the chance of that actual sale happening becomes much, much less. And as you mentioned, it's all about then where does that profitability scale come and, and how far can you push without your margins being essentially diminished? Um, and that's really the, the, the challenging tipping point of, of that. And being very honest, like that's if it, if it is at that point that maybe there isn't that much demand right now on Google for it in terms of PPC. There's other avenues that you can look into, like like social is a, is a really strong platform in that space. So if it's a product that you're trying to put on someone that they're not aware of yet, and therefore you need to show them the product and you need to give them information about it to encourage them then to come back, we can then serve them that product on, 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 on social and use something like a remarketing list to so track that user. When they come to your website, tag them with a remarketing list. And all of a sudden, when they then search for gifts for, for, for a birthday, we're then going to serve that same customer who's already been to your website through the Facebook ad, but we're going to then serve them an ad again. And all of a sudden, because that person's been to your site, the chance of them converting on that that birthday term is substantially higher than just a random person searching for a, a birthday gift for the first time. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. So that's kind of, it's it's about commitment then to the long-term play, kind of getting a, it's not, okay, maybe they didn't convert the first time they went to the website, uh, but we're going to, it's not the, the end, it's not the last time they hear of us, right? Um, <laughs> just on the on the kind of conversion piece, I saw something really interesting. This is not so relevant, but when we're thinking about um, getting people to actually convert and buy things on, uh, on websites, it's got to be as easy as possible, right? It's got to be so, like, if you have lots of, uh, you know, I like stuff to to go through a lot of hoops to go through. It, it makes it more difficult. I've abandoned so many things when I had to think twice about it. So I had I came across this. Uh, so no, uh, Wish dot com or Wish uh, app. Mm. You know, they sell like really cheap stuff, but like you know, yeah. in volume. Um, and I thought they did something really really clever. When I signed up, I signed up. I forget why. I was I think it was just through an ad. But anyway, I signed up for it, and they said, okay, we'll send you some uh, free earphones. Right, and I was like, okay, that sounds that sounds okay. Uh, you just got to pay for shipping. The shipping's two dollars or something. I'm like, okay, I've got two dollars to spend on some free earphones for sure. Uh, and the reviews on the earphones are all very good and all that type of stuff. So you go in, they get your credit card details, right? So they have your credit card details. The next time you go in, I bought some uh, some cycling spandex that Mark's going to make fun of me for, um, and it was <laughs> one click, just slide across to buy, and I was just like, this is genius. I'm. I need to get this fucking phone away from me because I'm about to buy all this stuff from China. Just swiping, you know. I think, and I know maybe that's not something that we could do uh, with the Prince website, but it is something to think about. Say, how are we going to just make this just easy, right? Any anytime I need to get my credit card number and flip it over, and you know, any type of yeah, sticking like, point is that is, is tough, you know. Like that, that's the thing. Like Shopify is an amazing platform in that capacity because it it has it all automatically already plugged in. It has all the the ecom best practices that we would be advising every client. They pretty much have it already there for you in a in a very easy to use and an, an easy format. Like the key things, as you mentioned, is like yeah, like card autofill. If you don't have card autofill on your website in these days, you are losing so many customers because people are so impatient. And yeah. um, just again, address autofill. Like no one wants to go and type in their address every single time they land to a website. So therefore. Everyone has it saved in the browser, they've it saved in their phone browser, one click, add address, and it's done. Um, and those little things that people, you know, in a lot of traditional websites that are maybe built on Magento and built on different platforms like that, still don't have some of those functionalities built in. 
Um, and they're losing so many conversions uh, every single day just because customers get frustrated. And the reality is there's a competitor who also sells it and they will just jump and buy from them. Absolutely. Shopify. Okay, do, sorry, sorry, Luke. Just, just from working where you work and dealing with all the different businesses that you deal with, have you ever, is there any kind of interesting or unique or lucrative kind of businesses that you've come across that, you've, that you wouldn't have thought of? Or have you ever seen anything, I don't know if you use Google Trends much or anything or how important that is, but anything kind of out there that we can that we can look at mark i love i love the entrepreneurial mindset he's, he's a <laughs> man for man for, for this angle. idea um it's an interest like being honest there's nothing that stands out as like a okay this is a, this is an easy money making machine like there's, there's the reality of it is setting up a business in any capacity is challenging like there's a lot of fundamental challenges on the back end in terms of supply chain sourcing products uh customer service that people often kind of i'd say uh, underestimate the importance of and like ultimately like I i've heard some really inspirational stories right so like one i'll kind of give you is like um Joe bulk powders the, the the sports supplements brand so they'd be probably number two in, in the uk to my protein um so I, I worked very closely with them for about two years and you know they've been on a fantastic trajectory over the last number of years they were two guys who, at 21 years of age uh, in university, started importing uh, supplements from the US before the UK really had a protein market and just started reselling it online. And they did that for about three years. Then they realized, you know, we could actually probably manufacture these products in the UK and increase our margins essentially on what we're selling. And they went about it. They did it. They set up their own brand. They set up a manufacturing uh, plant in Colchester. And, and now they essentially make a, a large array of, of sports nutrition and sports supplementation products um, in the UK. And they also have a, have a factory in Europe. Um, and, and they now ship to, to, to most countries in Europe. And like that is a story of, you know, two very normal guys, very, very bright guys, Adam and Elliot, the two founders um, that, that I worked with. And, you know, th these guys are, are doing very well for themselves now. You know, they have a, a business that's turning over a very substantial sum of money every year. Um, you know, Google advertising is a big source of advertising for them. Um, because there's so much demand for protein products. So if you think about it, anyone who goes to look for, you know, a new protein, a new creatine, whatever it might be, they generally go to Google and search for like whey protein and like whey protein, really competitive term. Um, but again, on that point, right, if, if a new protein brand comes into the market and just says, oh, we're going to start selling protein tomorrow, they don't have the brand equity to convert customers. They, they'll serve, like every, whey protein is very similar. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's essentially a byproduct of, 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 of milk and it's very easy to, 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 to produce and it's very, very similar in consistency no matter who produces it. They're all pretty much very similar products. Um, but when a new when a new competitor enters, you know, if they're serving just on like whey protein, which is a really competitive term, it doesn't really convert that well. Whereas because, for example, like bulk powders and my protein have built really strong brands in this space, all of a sudden, whenever someone sees bulk powders, they click on their ad because they know that they're reputable and they are essentially looking at driving that lifetime value because that industry is something that people buy on a monthly basis. They continue to come back again and again and again. Um, and, and it really is, it's that, it's that long-term vision around like, how do we, you know, source the right products initially. And then from there, how do we sell to the right consumers? And then how do we build the brand around that to kind of, kind of continue that loop? And I think it's something which like, I'm, I'm very similar to yourself, Mark. Like I have lots of kind of passion project interests around like entrepreneurship and setting a business on the side. And it just, it's a very, very challenging space. Like I think if you look at like the, the print on demand side of things, which is a big trend right now in, in, in the US and the UK, like there's people that are making lucrative money from that. But generally speaking, it's a, it's a short-term play that, you know, you might get a few months out of on a certain product and then you have to flip it to a new product and try and push that on people. And you try and, and it's essentially this kind of ever evolving, like 
flipping things that are not really great quality. You're not putting in the manufacturing expertise. You're not really, you know, putting in that investment behind it. You know, you're you're entering something very easily. There's very limited, very low barriers to entry to, the, to those type of product offerings. Um, but there's very little unique about them. And therefore, as you said, like if you're just serving, you know, a, a, a t-shirt with a print on it on, on a Google ad, the chance of someone buying that t-shirt if they're searching for a, a generic t-shirt is very, very slim. Um, and that's why like social works quite well for those things. If you can find a unique, something, something unique, you know, if you're looking at something in the fitness space, try and hone in on say CrossFitters and, and give them a, a CrossFit specific t-shirt um, and try and really target that niche audience of like CrossFitters. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, we've got a CrossFit based t-shirt. We set up a Shopify website that's really simple to set up. We have 10 product offerings. Everything is print on demand. We don't even have to touch the stock. It sounds like the dream. And and in some ways it can be and it can work. Um, But I think it's very hard to find the right product, the right niche, and something that will actually deliver a positive ROI. Because the thing with all of these kind of business types is the margins seem very high up front because the cost of production uh, is very low, but the cost of advertising is very high because there's very little demand for it. And therefore, we're trying to really create this demand for these product offerings that people don't necessarily want, but we're essentially trying to convince them to get that, that they do or to, to, to kind of push it upon them. And all of a sudden, I'm sure if you're very aware, like the marketing costs get pushed very, very high, very quickly. And that break even point all of a sudden gets very, very close. Um, and it's, it's an interesting space. And like I'm not saying there's so many people who, who have cracked it and are making great money through, you know, print on demand and drop shipping and, and all these different kind of initiatives. Um, but they're very different to building a brand, I would say. And that's something that like any company that we work with, they're really reputable brands who have this expertise. They have really strong teams that are built up who understand what they're doing. And, you know, they wouldn't stand behind the dropshipping business because delivery times are, are taking, you know, 30 odd days. The customer service is terrible because you're dealing with likes of AliExpress. Um, the, you know, the, the markup is high, very, very high on the initial price, but the, but the marketing spend is, very, is also very high and therefore that cuts your margin. And, it's a it's a very it, like I think there's, there's there's thousands of YouTubers who who will uh, screenshot their their hundreds hundred k month in sales like what what proportion of that is actual profit yeah. uh, I, w- I would often be very very skeptical. I'm actually allergic now to the dropship model and when I was in college yeah. um, I got I was I was doing well I set up it was on eBay it was it was kind of the big thing at the time right so um, I was I was doing a lot of eBay stuff and I remember. Uh, telling Mark I was going to buy a house and stuff uh, after the two months of it up and running. But then there was returns. There was It was just imploded. The stress, I can't tell you the stress because I'm not in control of the shipping. People are coming in. They've paid good money for stuff. It's really on me to provide the... Oh, it was I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't do the draft ever again. It was just a little bit uh, tough there. I know some people make money. Like I said, like in any anything, if you've, if you've thought about it, if you've got a, a brand and you've got like, a, you know, some sort of uniqueness about it then that's that's fine as well um but the you know the the pro the bulk pro or bulk powder uh example is really interesting because i was i was trying to sell hubspot a couple of years ago to this guy in i think it was sweden uh, i can't remember the name of the business but uh he was selling these types of things as well and he was quite a young guy i think he was in his mid-20s and he was using Clavio at the time, so I was trying to get him to leave Clavio and uh, come to HubSpot. So he did me like he did a, a screen uh, share of his uh, of his Clavio uh, account that's hooked up with all of his uh, advertising and sales and everything like that. And it almost made me cry how much money was coming in. Like his, he was. I was like, I don't know what to do. You're fine. You don't need HubSpot. <laughs> that's basically yeah. how, what it came <laughs> to. I'm like, what am I going to do? You're you're doing just fine, right? But his whole thing was um, everyone else is trying to sell bulk uh, stuff, or sorry, uh, 
protein that's what they're going after but he was going mm. after um weight management that's where all of his stuff was coming in so people who wanted to mm. either gain weight or lose weight but they'd come in and then they'd also buy uh, protein it was kind of he was going after i can't remember exactly he told me what the keyword or the, the what he was going after but it was something like that um yeah and he had i think it was 10 people working there and like millions and millions of krona coming in off the back of that and i was just like yeah i don't know what to do with you keep go- keep on keeping on and then hang up like that's what i was like you know i can't help you okay, okay so we yeah. actually we're pushing the time here mark why don't we this we could talk about this all day this type of stuff um why don't we do some uh, lightning round stuff and give uh, uh ogie some um some of his uh, saturday back here yeah just, one, i was gonna say sorry before, go i was gonna say but before we jump into lightning round i was gonna give like three or four kind of tips maybe for people who are very, very early days into Google advertising and maybe a few ideas of like where to get started, what to look for and, and, and what you might have. Perfect. I was just going to ask that. you that. We'd love that. Go ahead. <laughs> we're, we're, we're on the same page today. Um, yeah, right. So I, I just, I might, I'm going to run through them really quickly, right? So first things first is understanding what you want to achieve. So essentially conversion tracking, what is the action on your website that you want someone to complete? Is that a purchase? Is it a lead form? Is it a phone call? And ensuring that you have that really clear before you start advertising because it's crucial that you get that right and that you have it tracked because essentially everything else is going to be underpinned by that end result and, and that's kind of pivotal to, to, to the success of every any online advertising um the second one is in terms of if you're trying to understand how to find uh, you know, what people are searching for there's a tool in, in google ads called keyword planner right so it's in a google ads account called keyword planner and Keyword Planner essentially allows you to put in one term and it will then give you similar terms to that and tell you the volume of searches on those terms every month. So it's a really quick way to say how much demand is there for these different search queries in Ireland, UK, whatever market you want to look at. Um, so really, really useful tool whenever you're setting up campaigns as to what keywords you should be targeting and what demand there is for them. That's Keyword Planner. Um, the next one is a tool called Performance Planner. So whenever you have a campaign set up and it's running, Performance Planner will let you estimate the potential ROI for that campaign based on different goals. So for example, we talked about the diminishing returns curve. Um, It will essentially give you that from an advertising standpoint. So to to your point earlier on, Mark, around uh, how much do you need to spend in order to to be successful, this will essentially give you a scale of if you're spending this right now, this is how much you're getting return. If you spend in a kind of a straight line analysis, this, 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 this is where you'll get to a point of diminishing returns. And this is how much you can generate in sales from those, those terms. That has to have information in the account for it to work in terms of it has to have historical conversions there to, to judge that off but that's a really useful tool to essentially analyze the uh, potential growth of a campaign essentially depending on the budgets and the targets that you set for it um, so that one says performance planner um, the next one is a tool called market finder which is essentially a sync with google tool if you search market finder into your browser you should find it very quickly um, and essentially this i think for any irish business this is crucial because the Irish market, in, in honesty, is it's a very small market in comparison to what we have across the EU and in the UK in particular. So Market Finder essentially allows you to put in either your website or a number of terms and show you the demand for that business in other markets, essentially. Um, so it's a really, really useful tool to look at. And like I would say like export should be what every Irish business is thinking of as their next first, like their, their first step after setting up and getting things going. You should be looking at new markets because the demand uh, elsewhere is just so so huge and that will essentially give you a really good breakdown of each market by market in terms of income demographics population size and demand for your specific business in in those markets so really really useful one to, to get off the ground um just actually w- within that point again there's there's two other things here um 
initiatives that we run in Google. So there's one which is called a breakfast briefing series, which is on the last Friday of every month. Normally, it's an in-person event in, 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 the, in the Google office in Dublin. Um, I believe they're moving it to a virtual event. This is an event for essentially anyone to come in and learn about advertising. You have to sign up uh, on, online. Um, and essentially, it's a forum where we have our auditorium with about 200 and 50 to 300 people who come in and we'll give different topics each month around digital advertising. So I've given quite a few of the talks to, to the audience when they come in on, on Fridays and it's a really, really good forum. It's a really good platform. So that's something to look into. And the other one is um, the Grow with Google events. So we go around Ireland and we actually do uh, kind of a roadshow. So you kind of mentioned around not necessarily in universities, but more so for small businesses working with Enterprise Ireland. Um, we do one in Port Leash and Galway, Cork, Donegal. Um, and again, essentially a team of Googlers, myself, uh, I've been involved in a few of them and, and kind of some of the managers and a, and a few other reps would go around essentially and give talks on Google advertising. So if you ever see one of those coming up in your local area or if you're working with, with, with the local enterprise office, um, sign up for them and go on to those talks because there's some really useful information to be gained. Um, and then the final one, I think this is a really useful one. So a lot of people are trying to understand how does Google advertising work, how to upskill, whatever. Um, Google have a like, full free uh, online certificate, essentially, in all elements of Google advertising. So it's under the Google Skill Shop. And within the Google Skill Shop, again, to search Google Skill Shop into your browser, you essentially have the fundamentals of search advertising, fundamentals of shopping advertising, fundamentals of display, and YouTube. And this gives you essentially... Like a lot of media agencies in Ireland, for example, right? people go through digital marketing degrees, You know, they have a degree in digital marketing. They touch the surface of, of, of Google advertising, being very honest. Whenever a grad ent enters into a media agency in Dublin, the first thing that they're going to do is spend the first month doing these Google Skill Shop ads uh, academy, essentially, in order to upskill themselves. And then they're handed over to, to manage uh, customers' accounts in a lot of cases. Um, so they're really, really comprehensive, really high, inf high quality information. And that is where I would really go to kind of upskill and, and, and learn the in-depth kind of understandings of how it all works um, if you want to. And yes, yeah, so that's my, my quick five. Uh, conversion tracking, understand what you want to track. Uh, keyword finder to understand what to target performance planner to look at how much uh, capacity there is on those campaigns, market finder to find new markets, and finally Google Skill Shop to upskill and learn all about Google Ads. Fabulous. That could be Brilliant. worth a million dollars here, Mark. What do you think that type of info? Like, I didn't know that they, they had the, the kind of certificates online. This is something I've, I was, again, during lockdown, I was kind of looking around at all, kind of what's available out there. Um, so I was upskilling with uh, some competitors, uh, uh, <laughs> software that they were they were offering some uh some education on which has really been helpful to me but it is so so interesting how uh, the education has been democratized like that like you said what they teach in a, a business course or what they teach from the people who are actually generating these ads it's going to be completely different it's real tactical as in uh like stuff that you can actually use like you can be go go become an expert in some bi tool like looker if you have like i said a month to to dig into it and whatever two hundred dollars and then do you mean there's real skills you can just get online now which i think people aren't really taking advantage of but mark how, how about those uh, lightning round questions what's going on okay one one last quick question Ogie. sorry just to, to get ranked on google you know is there anything I know it's kind of in contrast to the ads, but is there anything you can do to help that quickly? Um, it's a funny one. We genuinely actually can't advise any customer on uh, on, on SEO rankings and everyone we can help them compete on, on, on paid, but we can't advise on, on, on uh, organic. And the reason is it will be unfair advantage for, for any client. Like it's essentially looking at making your website as relevant as possible and having as much information and content on it. Like, I genuinely, I don't know much about the back end in terms of SEO, but it wouldn't be my skill set. Um, your best bet is looking into um, 
like a web dev or, or a media agency who works on SEO and um, because yeah they will know an awful lot more than me so I'm, I'm not even gonna try and give you an answer that I, that I don't know about to be very honest it's such no a- worries I'm sure I'm sure ads can only help though as in clicks to the website you know the more people on your website the more you're gonna go up yeah, if you're honest, they're they're very they're completely separate. So they, yeah. they ad, ad traffic won't impact your SEO uh, results. Oh, really? Okay, There's a nice little gem there because we actually had a when I first started in HubSpot, we had a SEO tool that we used to show a lot in demos and stuff. But we actually had to sunset it because it was essentially not not really telling you the truth about uh, what to what to do. We'd, not that it was set up like that, but when it was set up, uh, things were a little bit more simple. So now our SEO tools are just more tracking how you're doing rather than how to do better. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm sure there's some uh, dark arts out there that, that can help us skip the queue, but yeah. that's another podcast yeah. maybe. Yeah, we might, we might have somebody on just like in a balaclava, like uh, <laughs> giving us the giving us the hot take. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, what apps do you use the most? What apps do I use the most? Um, recently, my fitness pal, I've, I've started with a new PT and he's has me tracking meals. I've never done it before in my life. So that's been my my daily rigor at the minute. Um, beyond that, Audible, a uh, big one for, 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 for audiobooks. Um, I'm not a great reader being semi-dyslexic, so audiobooks are my go-to. Sponsor of um, the podcast, just throwing that in there. <laughs> sorry? They're a sponsor of the podcast, SharkPod. Link oh, below. Nice, very good, very good. Right, go um, yeah, that'd be my two stand out, yeah. Okay, very good. Um, what's your favorite social media and why? Um, probably a love hate relationship, but the only one that I really use is Instagram. I'm, I'm not a, I don't really use uh, Facebook or, or Snapchat or any of the other ones. Uh, Instagram is my kind of go to, I'd say, mainly because most of where, where my, my friends would be and, and uh, catching up with what they're up to and, and uh, that kind of thing. Oh, okay, you're gone. Or is it me? It might be me. We're, oh, we're still here. I think it's you. I think okay, we're gone. Okay. <laughs> okay. Back. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, not, not deleted as such, but I've deleted the app for Facebook. I just, yeah, I'm not sure why I don't use it anymore. I just find it's lots of, yeah, junk news articles that I, I don't really want to be clickbaited into uh, trying to read about the latest catastrophe in the world. Uh, similar to, to Luke's point earlier on, I'm, I'm not a big news reader for that reason. I kind of looked up my own mindset on what's going on and uh, prefer not to have too many external forces yeah. filling me with uh, junk. Yeah. Do you ever click yeah. through Didn't and feel panic. bad about yourself afterwards? So it's, uh, like well, it's yeah. a celebrity when they like look at, look what they look like now. That's a. <laughs> sometimes I'll go in and I have to click through six things to get to. I just feel I, as they really I don't know why I, I need to know what former Big Brother house uh, contestants look like now, but <laughs> yeah. I had a look yesterday. See, they know. <laughs> Surprisingly good. Yeah. Okay. What's the best business idea you've never acted upon? Um, interesting one. We we had a college project at one stage, which was um, actually it wasn't my idea. It was one of the guys in the group who came up with um, essentially a portable um, my wadi holder essentially which later got introduced so essentially like everyone has water there's water uh, coolers pretty much everywhere in universities and in businesses you go and fill your bottle of water with water water is a bit plain and basic a lot of people get bored of drinking water and um, so his idea was essentially have a little uh, squeeze juice bottle that you can buy and fill your water bottle with and about a year or two later my wadi have obviously came up with it and launched the market uh, so that was, that was an interesting one um yeah, I'm, no, I'm a big fan of those things i can't well i get bored with water like that i was i, was, I thought you were going to say attached to a water cooler machine was an option to put in some black current 
you know that could be another one there eh? <laughs> yeah we'll go offline of that one as well it's a great idea we'll get some uh paper click mark what's the next question <laughs> <laughs> if you could do business anywhere in the world where would it be um for me i'm very keen on moving to sydney australia because i just think that lifestyle is exactly what i want to be living in my uh, late 20s and spend time at the beach being able to exercise outdoors do a bit of surfing and um, have a decent work-life balance sounds good to me yeah. Um, how much money is enough money? Very interesting point. I think uh, definitely came to a realization uh, that you know the amount of money you make is not necessarily going to impact your happiness. I think you know as you alluded to earlier on, Luke, kind of hitting that six figures sum is a, is a big milestone for a lot of people. And I guess you kind of realize that it, it doesn't add additional value to your, your livelihood, doesn't add additional happiness to your life. And I think that's whenever you you really need to look inside to look at like what are your passions and interests and, and, and what's going to really drive you forward. Um, so yeah, to, to me, I think of, I, I always had a, my key goal was to be a millionaire at 30, um, four years to four years to go and not quite there yet. Plenty of time. Um, sorry. Plenty of time. You get there. Plenty, yeah. It's, it's definitely been done in, in less previously, but um, yeah, I, I think I've definitely moved away from having such a, such a strong focus on, on, money as a material object and, and looking at the, the importance of it. Cause I think once you have security and have good relationships, good friendships um, and stability in your life, I think they're much more important than any, any amount of money. And I've, I've seen a lot of people who've, who've made a lot of money and been very unhappy doing so. And, and kind of realizing that, 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 that balancing point for me is, is much, much more important than, than any paycheck at the end of the month. Do you know, Mark, I'd like to jump in there, maybe touch on that one as well. Cause it's a lot of people on the podcast, they have different answers and stuff like that, but I was thinking about this during the week uh, and it scared the shit out of myself because I was thinking how much money it would you actually need if you were to live the way you wanted to to live a normal, a, a, not a normal life, but like a, a nice comfortable. life. Comfortable. You know? You'd probably need, uh, let's say that it's 50% a higher end tax. You probably need 10 grand a month with five grand coming in. That would be a really, that's a nice, that's a nice kind of stipend a month, right? If I live till 90, um, I would have to, that's uh, that's seven hundred and twenty uh, months. So that's uh, I would need. I mean, it works out at, at seven point two million euro that you'd have to make. So we got to get after it. We're we're only getting started. I don't mean, I don't want to put yeah. pressure on it, but like you know, you never you, know what way Luke is going to go with that. He might just say like, <laughs> actually, I could survive on a grand and I could live in Peru or something. Yeah, it could anyway. be that. But yeah, you know, I'm just keep um, keep it in mind. What do you fear? What do I fear? Um, I think one of my biggest challenges or biggest fears has been getting over uh, external judgment or pressure. And I think that's something which kind of looking at it intrinsically when you're entrepreneurial, when you put yourself out there, when there's the initiatives you want to do, you really have to build quite a thick skin. Um, and I think it's something that I've always struggled with is looking at, you know, how people perceive me, you know, is my, am I upholding my image? Am I acting in the ways that people expect me to act? And that maybe comes from, as I mentioned, kind of my background, maybe feeling that I was seen as lesser growing up when I was very young. I always wanted to kind of establish myself and have a good, you know, repertoire and, and, and people to kind of trust me and have that credibility in, in a workplace. Um, and I think as a result of that, I almost became quite afraid of, 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 of being more true to myself or, or, or that kind of fear of judgment of, of having an opinion that was different or that standing out or pursuing an idea that was maybe a little bit left field. Fear judgment, yeah. huge. Mark, one more. Let's, let's drive it home. What's a good one there? Okay, two more. Um, if you could advise someone to learn one skill, what would it be? I think the biggest pivotal skill that I look at is developing a growth mindset, like genuinely 
being able to understand and overcome challenges and not having the fear of thinking that you're restricted in what you can learn or what you can do. I think mindset is, is, is crucial to development and crucial to progress. I think so many people limit themselves and pigeonhole themselves by saying, I could never do that or, oh, you know, great for them, but, but you know, I, I, I couldn't or I wouldn't be able to. And I think that is something that it's a real mindset shift of like, no, you can do whatever you want to do if you apply yourself and, and, and try and learn whatever skill set it is you're trying to develop. So I think, yeah, developing a, a growth mindset is, is crucial to, to long-term success. Great advice. Okay, last one. What advice would you give to the 18-year-old you? 18-year-old me, um, try not to fuck up as much as I did uh, and and learn some of the lessons that I learned earlier in life. Um, now, I think, being honest, I think it's, um, I, I'm really grateful for a lot of the challenges that I went through because it's actually what's pushed me in, in a really positive direction. I think don't, don't, don't be afraid to seek out discomfort in a sense and, and don't be afraid to try things that, 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 that might challenge you challenge your perceptions um but ultimately have the courage to make the right decisions for yourself have the courage to to you know be around the people that you should be around and and, and don't allow yourself to be in negative circles that are pulling you back don't allow yourself to be your own worst critic and, and, and pull yourself back and um yeah just just allow yourself to kind of to, to have the courage to do what you actually want to do love it that's, a, that's some, great uh, some great stuff there as well. Um, so what we're going to do is we're probably going to be Wednesday week this comes out, but I'd like to thank uh, Ogie Hollywood, still a great name, uh, <laughs> for coming along today uh, for the Shark Pod. Um, there is a there there may or may not be a Shark T-shirt that looks something like this on the way to you uh, at some stage. So anyway, give uh, give our best to our friend uh, Barry Hickey as well when you see him. Uh, I won't even see him in person for a few months, I wouldn't say. I'll have a video call next week, so I'll All make right. sure to let him know you guys are saying hello. Yeah, good time give him a shout out. But thanks very much, and uh, let's, let's keep in touch. Cheers. Thanks, yeah, nice look, guys. Cheers for having me on. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again soon. Cheers.